works. Yeah. All right. Hello, everybody. Um, and this is Mark, of course. If you're listening to this podcast, you you pretty much expect me. <laughs> but one day there'll be a guest host. That'll be interesting. Um, Especially if they're named Mark. Exactly. That'll really throw everything. Or they could be named Mike. Mike. <laughs> they could be. Yeah. yeah. But no, no, no. It's Mark. I'm in Tokyo, uh, continuing the journey um, back in the city. And with an old friend who's sitting right across from me. So let me say hi to uh, Sean Bonner. Hi, Sean. Hi. Thank you so much for letting me finally, finally join you. <laughs> did, uh, this new and exciting version of the podcast. Did you ever, I think when we were in Berlin, did we record? I think we recorded yeah. some stuff, uh, but it was a long time ago. Oh. And, you know, worlds, worlds apart from, from now. Yeah. Yeah. That's back when you had to explain what a podcast was. I had to explain what a blog was in a lot of cases. Um, Sean, uh, I was here last year. We did some, we, the audience and I did some podcast stuff uh, then. Here I am back in Tokyo. And so finally, uh, I said, we should talk yeah. on mic because we do plenty of talking off mic when I'm here. Um, you have an interesting, in my opinion, experience and, and adventure that continues, uh, not only in, in life, but specifically here <laughs> in Japan. Yeah. And I thought, like, you know, we could, we could talk a little bit about that. Also, because I don't even know all the details about that. You and I are the kind of people that talk a few times a year. As we cross small stuff randomly around the world. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So part of this is going to be me learning. Um, okay. Your connection or your experience with japan how did that even begin if you can remember <laughs> yeah i mean i live here now right but i right. didn't always obviously uh so i've kind of always had a interest in kind of japanese culture uh in one way or another i think going back to you know a kid with super robot cartoons and you know godzilla movies and sort of how were you uh well, I was born in D.C., but, uh, you know, grew up in sort of Florida and Texas and, you know, kind of all over the place. And, uh, you know, I always just found myself attracted to those kinds of aesthetics and storylines. And, um, you know, I was a big Voltron fan and I mm. had Shogun Warriors and, you know, like all of those kinds of things as a kid. Right. And uh, again, Godzilla movies were a huge piece of it. So I think like as as a kid, um I always thought like the Japanese toys and Japanese cartoons and things w were much cooler than mm -hmm. the U S stuff that I was kind of surrounded by and that the other kids at my schools and stuff were interested in. So I think that, uh, without any intentionality to it, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I had some sort of like draw. Right. And then, um, as I got older, um, uh, well, the first things I ever did on the internet, um, you know, as, I mean, I, and I say that as like the World Wide Web, not like IRC and things like that before beforehand, which I was uh, deeply involved with. But the first like websites that I ever built were with a bunch of other like Japanese toy nerds in the mid 90s. Um, so I was hanging out on a site called Alan Yen's Toy Box, which then became Alan Yen's Toy Box DX once we added a bunch of new exciting features to it. <laughs> and then uh, a friend of mine who uh, at the time was living in Maryland named Matt Alt. Uh, he and I created a kind of resource for these uh, then really hard to find Japanese toys called Jumbo Machinders that were just hard to find any information about it or anything. So we tried to create a resource of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we put all those things up online. So this was mid to late 90s. So those were like the websites that I was building right. long before I ever had been to Japan and, you know, was just kind of trying to hunt down information and stuff. Yeah. And then 
independently of that had this sort of martial arts connection uh, that I was studying some Japanese arts and stuff. And uh, so, you know, whatever I was doing, there was kind of this thread running, running through one way or another. And then uh, I had some friends in Japan and uh, in 2006, you know, one, one thing or another sort of led to an offer to, why don't you just come and hang out in Tokyo for a month? And I couldn't come up with an excuse not to. And, uh, had sort of always wanted to go to Japan, but never justified it for one reason Mm -hmm. or another, you know, I don't have enough money saved up, you know, whatever it is. Right. I just, I talked myself out of it. And this, this was sort of presented in a way that I really had no excuse not to go. Mm. So, uh, I took off and came to Tokyo for a month and, uh, spent most of the time with headphones on just kind of wandering around the street on my own mm-hmm. uh, and totally fell in love with, <laughs> you know, the, the city and kind of the atmosphere and the experience of it in a lot of ways. As, as someone from not here, uh, right. being here, sort of surrounded by it. And, uh, and then I started kind of working with a couple different people here doing mm-hmm. some events and uh, hanging out a little bit at the Tokyo Hackerspace. I had the you know, my hackerspace in Los Angeles crash base at the time and, um, hanging out in European hackerspaces and stuff, you know, where, where we crossed paths initially. And, uh, you know, so all of those sort of different little subcultures overlapping in one way or another. Um, and so, yeah, so I found myself, you know, in Japan, uh, maybe, maybe two or three times a year kind of, uh, from, from about 2007 on, and then in 2011, uh, when there was the Tohoku earth- earthquake on, on 311 and the sort of resulting Fukushima you know, meltdown. As a short while ago, a 90-centimeter tsunami hit the port of Soma, and a 60-centimeter tsunami hit the port of Onohama. Both are on the coast of Fukushima Prefecture. There are reports of minor injuries. The tsunami warning for coastal areas is still in effect. The agency says the wave could reach three meters. They have also issued a tsunami advisory for prefectures in northeastern and eastern Japan. Anyone in those areas should listen to local authorities and disaster management officials for information. That was the impetus for starting SafeCast, which is the sort of nonprofit that I run right now with a a number of other people, and we collect and publish radiation data. You, as you just pointed out, there were toys, but then later, I mean, you were into... Applications of technology, yeah, sure, of uh, playing, tinkering, mm-hmm. it's in your heart, I think. Yeah. Um, but then we have this disaster followed by the, I, I keep trying to think about language in terms of is disaster the word or is accident, but we, we know that these terms get flipped around. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, it, the, yeah. the truth is that it, there was sort of a, a triple-decker thing, right? <laughs> you have the earthquake and the tsunami and the nuclear meltdown, right? Um, and... Uh, there was very few places that were impacted by all three of those, you know, a couple, a couple small towns that just got everything, but in the most part, things were impacted by one or the other, or maybe in some cases too, but they all sort of happened at the same time. So they get lumped together. Right. Um, as far as immediate loss of life, the tsunami was the really big thing, right. As the, you know, physical destruction, it was the earthquake, you know, long lasting environmental concern. It's the nuclear, right. So these, these, these things sort of, 
uh, interweave a bit, but they're also a bit separately. Um, but I was in the U.S. at the time when that happened. Uh, it was March, and I had a conference planned in April. I did an April conference in Tokyo called the New Context Conference. Uh, still goes on to this day. Other people are, are doing it. I didn't start it. I just kind of came in to help run it for a few years and bring in some people. And so uh, I was planning to be in Japan in April to do this conference and had some things lined up for it. And uh, this earthquake happens in March. So I immediately reach out to kind of everybody to you know see what's going on and make sure everybody's okay. And yeah. uh, what became clear at the time uh, was that nobody could get any information on anything. And, you know, kind of panic in, you know, disaster after effect of, you know, everybody kind of running around in different directions. Um, so Joey Ito, who I was working on the conference and other things with at the time, uh, was also in the U S though he was living in Japan, uh, Mm -hmm. then. And so he and I started talking immediately and assuming that it was just the chaos after effects though i nobody could find anything but you know we're sort of internet people we can go find the information uh and put it in a useful format for people and what became very clear pretty quickly uh was that there wasn't any information it wasn't it wasn't that you couldn't find it it was that literally there was nothing available as far as sort of contamination Um, monitoring um or or any way to know what radiation levels were normally or how they had changed or where they were changing it just there was no information at all about this and um so we sort of reached out to all of our networks um and for me that was hackerspaces in los angeles and in tokyo and uh you know web building people Hmm. uh and you know similar similar circles for joey but also some other policy people and you know whatever and so we ended up creating this kind of skype chat room uh, where we were just kind of pulling everybody in anybody we could think of anywhere the conversation we would they dragged in so at some points there were you know 20 or 30 people kind of in this skype call although not talking it was all chat at the time because we just had too many people overwhelmed right, right, <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just kind of yeah it was just kind of running all all the time and uh you know wherever a discussion would lead oh, i don't know that but hold on a second i know the person who can answer that and we drag that person in and you know so we ended up having some uh you know some hackers and some makers and some people who didn't know anything about hacking or making, but knew everything about nuclear, <laughs> you know, like all of these right. different people. And, um, and we just kind of started putting together a plan of how do we even find out what's happening? You know, who knows what's going on and how do we find out what's going on? And concurrently, this conference was still planned for April, mm-hmm. but it was suddenly, you know, a little sketchy because all the, and this was like a, I don't want to say generic, but like it, it was sort of a run of the mill in, I don't know, I'm, that sounds terrible. But what, I, what I'm saying is it was kind of like a web conference of like what's happening on the Internet, not like the most exciting, crazy, insane things we've ever heard of. It was really kind of a let's bring in the people who are working on Internet stuff right now to talk about what they're doing and, you know, what they're what you know, what they see for the next year or, or something like that. A little bit of forecasting. Yeah. So a lot of those people who had been booked to come to Tokyo for this were suddenly like, Hey, is it still safe for me to come to Japan? And we were like, ah, I don't know. (laughs) Um, yeah, exactly. And then, and, but we also didn't want to just cancel it because we felt like if everything's fine, that's the, that's the wrong position to take. We don't want to send the message, you know, Oh, we're going to start canceling everything. If, if everything's okay. Right. And then, Mm -hmm. then you sort of end up, you know, fear mongering a little bit. Right. Um, and so what we decided to do was to just change the theme of the conference from, you know, what's happening on the web right now to what do we do next in Japan? Mm -hmm. 
And so what that allowed us to do and allowed other people to do is people who had previously been booked could sort of gracefully bow out Mm -hmm. if they wanted to because, well, the theme isn't really my thing anymore, so... And that's fine, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But it also gave us an excuse to invite all these people from this chat room Mm -hmm. to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all the people that we were sort of chatting with, we brought as many of them over as we could. We all came and sat down in a room and it was like, you know, the Apollo 11 scene where everybody just kind of dumps (laughs) bags of duct tape and gear out on a table. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? So that's what we did because we couldn't get any equipment because essentially the world supply of Geiger counters kind of sold out overnight. Uh-huh. As soon as news of a nuclear meltdown started spreading, right? Like everybody in Ohio had to have all the Geiger counters, you know, or something. Right. Um, but so you, even at that time, you, it seems like you, the, the naturally floated to the top, the, the number one bit of information that was needed was actually radiation. Levels. Yeah, because people just didn't know what was happening, right? And there was just nowhere, like people, you know, there were starting to be some evacuations, oh, okay. but, you know, and people were sort of like, is it safe where I am? I don't even know. And you, you know, just, the government... They didn't have sensors. I mean, there was literally no sensors in place, right? I mean, there was a little bit of a monitoring network, but it went offline pretty pretty quickly around that time. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, you couldn't get, uh, you you know, because our our initial thought was let's go find information, and then our you know sort of yeah. follow up thought was well let's just go buy a bunch of sensors and give them to people, and that became impossible too because, you know, if you were in the sort of uh, radiation monitoring business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you were really excited to sell five or 10 devices, <laughs> you know, in right. a month, right. Right? right? And then all of a sudden you got orders for 10,000 in a day yeah. or something, right? Yeah. It was just the, the supply chain of the entire thing collapsed. Right. So nobody could get anything, you know? So, I, you know, I found two or three things on eBay and somebody else found, you know, one thing at a store. You know, like we really had a very scattered um, mm-hmm. collection of, of stuff that we were trying to bring together to understand. And one of the people that we got in touch with in these early days was this guy named uh, Dan Scythe, who runs a company called International Medcom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really lucky because Dan uh, Dan's company uh, is one of the premier uh sort of consumer and industrial radiation monitoring companies. Um, He also had no equipment available to sell, but what he had was a bunch of equipment that he couldn't sell because there was a problem with the battery and, you know, it was supposed to last two weeks, but his, these ones lasted three days or something. And, you know, they had the wrong resistor, you know, something like that. So they were sort of B grade. Right. He couldn't sell them commercially, but he could certainly give them to us because they measured correctly right so we got a bunch of those kinds of things and and that's where we all kind of sat down in the room for a, a couple of days and looked at the equipment and talked about plans and came up with the idea to, to start mobily you know to attach a gps device to these and sort of a mm-hmm. microprocessor to them to log the data and so with one device we could collect a whole lot of data as opposed to what everybody had done to that point which was you know a very little bit of data with one device yeah. and that's when we started mapping everything out right. publishing the data put everything into public domain right away so everybody could get access to it instantly without any kind of headache yeah. and then our data started showing that some of the evacuated areas were not as contaminated as some of the non-evacuated areas which mm-hmm. were more contaminated yeah. right and started so all of this story sort of developed beyond that point yeah um and then it also became clear that the data that wasn't available in Japan also wasn't available anywhere else in the world. So this wasn't a Japan-specific mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. Uh, and something that we realized could be useful for other people as well, right? So we sort of 
had our devices that we were hacking together one at a time by hand, you know, converted that into a sort of a kit format that anybody could build any place, you know. And so um, all over the world, people started building these devices and collecting the data with them and sending them into the data set we were publishing out. So we really created this uh, global data set. Right. Um, nothing like that had ever existed before. You know, it's it's by far the largest of its kind yeah. um, in any way. Uh, and it's been endorsed by essentially every nuclear governing body on the planet at this point. There's governments that are using it, you know, in place of their, their previous mm-hmm. data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so it's become, you know, it's become quite a thing, yeah. uh, which which is great. And then in the past year and a half or so, we started measuring air quality as well. So we're building oh, wow. new sensors uh, that are just focusing on particulate matter uh, as opposed to you know radiation. Here at Westinghouse, as men write another chapter in the sureness behind every Westinghouse product, scientists are developing the world's first atomic power plant for ship propulsion. Entrusted by the Navy and the Atomic Energy Commission, Westinghouse men are converting basic data from the University of Chicago into the atomic power plant. As all this was going on, you know, I was coming back and forth to Tokyo almost every other month yeah. at this point over the past few years. And then um, we just decided, you know, why don't we go live there for a little while and see, <laughs> you know, right. and see what that's like. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're never going to have a better, better excuse. Right. So, yeah. So it was a little, uh, you know, just just over a year ago that we that we moved here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Going to come back to the living here. But, um, it's interesting also that, as you mentioned, and, I, and I've seen your presentations over the years, and I've, I've, I, I read what comes out, and, um, you know, this is a very much a global thing now. Absolutely. I mean, there's tons of data for Japan, but there's also data for, I don't know, Montana. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's interesting to me, but also that, is it still that the, the sort of hub for all things SafeCast is here? This is our only physical location. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have SafeCast offices all over the place. We we only have this this space that we're sitting in right now. Uh, we do have volunteers all over the place, right. um, very active volunteers in many cases that are all over the place. So, you know, one example is um, right now in Southern California, um, near the San Onofre nuclear facility that was shut down a few years ago because it was leaking, mm-hmm. there's been sort of decommissioning plans and things in the works and trying to figure out what to do with the spent fuel that's there and um, all this sort of stuff. And there's a, a group of local volunteers there who are uh, deploying safe cast sensors around it. They're collecting and data up or up and down the beaches near there and publishing that. Right. So there's a number of people in that city who are like sort of safe casters, yeah, right? They get together. Yeah, exactly. They get together and they like collect stuff and they publish stuff and uh, you know they take the data to you know city meetings to say, look, this is the the safe cast data that's that's going on with this. Um, you know that kind of thing happens in many places. If you look at Czech Republic, uh, yeah. it's one of the most covered countries that we have outside of Japan. And it's because there's a small team of volunteers there who are sort of dedicated to covering every single street up and down. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so, yeah, you look around, you know, Europe's covered, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the U.S. We have bands that have 
you know, put our sensors on their tour vans and just uh-huh. driven across the country, right? And so you right. can see these long stretches of, uh, you know. So lots of different people are helping in different ways. But in the same time, there's, you know, there's coders someplace that aren't measuring stuff, but, you know, they're, you know, contributing significantly to, you know, to the database or to, you know, the, how the API works or, or, or something along those lines, right? There's, so whatever, whatever your interest is, there's some way that you can benefit SafeCast and contribute something if, if that's what you want to do, right? Yeah. We try to, you know, really keep it open in, in every way. What's... What is your, um, as an organization with some resources, I'm looking around the room, <laughs> as an organization with some resources, what do you, I'm going to use the word provide, or what is your relationship? Uh, it sounds like, the, for example, the Los Angeles case, mm-hmm. you being a former Los Angelian, yeah. um, have even been to visit, perhaps, Angelino. with them. Angelino, <laughs> there it is, yeah. spoken like a person who's only been there when he <laughs> once. Um, but yeah, what's the... How how much do you get involved in? In what way? Well, so in the early days, we used because again you, there was no equipment available. We used to give equipment mm-hmm. as much as we possibly could. So we were building stuff and giving it out. Um, but what ended up happening was in that in those in that situation was people were desperate to get sensors and equipment right up to the point that they got it, and then they then their curiosity was sort of quenched, and then they would stop measuring. So they would. They would get sensors from us and measure everything they possibly could over 24 or 48 hours and then yeah. put it on their shelf at New home. Toy. Yeah, and then we would have to spend, you know, weeks trying to get that back from them to give it to somebody else who would then do the same thing. Right. So when, when, when the supply chains cleared up enough and we could make the kit and allow people to sort of build it on their own, then we stopped giving away devices at that point and we sort of said here's the sensor you know uh you know here's the the plans and here's the kit and you know here's a couple places where you can buy the kit from if you want to or here's the parts list if you want to just go buy all the parts yourself or something Mm -hmm. but if you want to do this you have to sort of make this financial investment on your own to get to get the device for it and at that point our our readings actually went through the roof. I mean, there's a huge spike at that point that's continued to increase ever since then. I mean, our, our data set grows almost 3 million data points a month right now um, mm-hmm. because, you know, it turns out when people have a little bit of a financial stake in it, then they want to do it all the time, right? So there, it's, not a, it's not a passing curiosity when they've spent a little bit of money. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, and people come at it from different directions, right? Some people are curious about what's going on in their town. Some people want to see how much ground they can cover, right? I mean, there's people that that are SafeCast volunteers that uh, just travel all the time. And mm-hmm. so they're just t- trying to see how much of the map they can cover themselves. Right. There's people who are like, I'm the first person to go to Iceland with a SafeCast center. I'm going to measure the entire country, you know? <laughs> you know? It becomes a project. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and then, you know, on a smaller scale, there's people who are, you know, dealing with some local environmental issue in their city um, that's specific to their city and they're just kind of adding SafeCast to their arsenal of things that they're you know collecting so that they have data about what's going on right so there's people who are just very focused on measuring a little area or, or, or something along those lines um, so when people get in touch with us you know we sort of try to point to those resources as much as possible um, but we also do workshops where we sort of help people build things um, and we certainly have a, a small group of loaner devices that in some situations we can loan to people uh, mostly if it's a place that hasn't been measured you know we're not loaning 
devices to people to measure Tokyo at this point because it's yeah, there's enough people here and and we're covering it in every way. But you know, but if you see a case of somebody somewhere. in the middle of nowhere that we've never been or something, uh, you know, who's struggling to get something, then we can we'll often try to get them a device to at least at least get some measurements yeah. from from that area. Mm. Yeah, I feel like it helps illustrate your point that behind you is a workbench with soldering irons yeah. and. Uh, a few safe cast devices and uh, lots of supplies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we're building stuff and repairing stuff on a pretty regular basis. And, and even with, um, you know, with sort of people who are trying to instrument their city in one way or another, right? I mean, we have, we have mobile devices, but we also have static devices, right? Oh. So we have some, some devices that are in place um, that need to be attached to a building and a power we also have ones that are solar powered and cellular, so they just somebody just needs to stick it someplace and turn it on and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on what the deployment looks like, yeah. there's a different solution for it. Yeah. Um, and so we often work with different groups and different people around the world to say, okay, what is it that you're trying to do there? You know, what's the first step? Often the first step is just getting one mobile sensor to quickly scan you know, as much as you can to sort of see if there's something interesting <laughs> or noteworthy. And then if there's you know, a source of interest nearby, like a nuclear reactor or something like that, mm-hmm. then it makes more sense to also put in some of the static ones that are monitoring all the time, almost like a first alert system, right? Yes. With um, with Fukushima, it was almost five days before there was official confirmation that there was, you know, yeah. a leak happening, right? And so our sensors are reporting stuff live to the internet every five seconds or every five minutes in some cases, right? right. So five minutes is, you know, considerably better than five days sure. so <laughs> yeah. if you can get some of these around then one that's... might argue you could save some lives or at least you know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean a lot of it as has been studied by other researchers and everything along the the path you know along that time is the stress from not knowing oh, okay. is significantly worse than the stress from knowing things are bad yeah. right so even knowing that your area is contaminated is less stressful if you have the concrete information because then you can make a decision, right? Yeah. Okay, now I know what's happening. I can decide what to do next. Yeah. But if you don't know, then you assume worst case, but you don't have anything to support that, right? And, and especially, you know, there was a really bad move in Japan where they had the mandatory evacuation zone mm-hmm. and then a larger optional evacuation zone, <laughs> <laughs> right? Which um, really mess with your head. Really, you know, and especially when you're talking about sort of small towns with generational businesses and families and all this sort of stuff, right? Where they're sort of like, um, well, it's optional that I, I evacuate, right? So if I evacuate, what does that say about my neighbor who doesn't evacuate, yeah. right? And if I have kids and I'm worried about this, but my neighbor has kids and they are, you know, yeah. or, you know, or like, older people who are not worried you know like it was just it just created this this really unfortunate social situation um that being able to provide people with the actual information here's the measurement from your street right you know now you know and you can decide whether it's important for you to upend your entire life right or not right it may not be a good Measurement. I mean, it may not be a good. Um, maybe it may show a problem. Yeah. But at least now you know. Yeah, and exactly. You can... And and the thing is, is because this wasn't a evacuate for the weekend. You know, it wasn't like a forest fire that's you know is all going to be cleared up in a couple of days and then you can go back, right? I mean, the, these evacuations were sort of like you may never come back to your house again. You know, so you're going to really move your entire life and everything that you've ever known. Yeah. So it's a kind of a serious decision, right? <laughs> And, and so if you're going to 
if you're going to make that decision, it would be good to have something concrete to base that decision on. Right. Right. And, and even more interesting that it, that you possibly that you're part of the process of gathering this data is kind of empowering. Right. Uh, and that, that's something that we've seen for sure. Right. The people who, who got involved, um, took real pride in being able to help out their neighbors and yeah. being able to, you know, cur- contribute to this, this data set, you know, that ended up being super useful for lots of people and all these various, various things. Yeah. Yeah. So in the meantime, yeah. Here you are. It's uh, your second year of living in Tokyo. No, no, first year. Really? Yeah. When was I here? <laughs> you were oh, here the, almost, year, yeah. almost right after we moved here. Yeah, we oh, right, we, right. we moved to Tokyo in September. Yeah, I was yeah. here for Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, okay. we half our stuff from the U.S. hadn't even arrived. That's right. You know. <laughs> Many many boxes of things arrived after after you were here yeah. <laughs> last time, yeah. Um, so but uh, yeah, so it's just been just been the one year anniversary. never ask you because there would just not be enough time all the things you've learned <laughs> um but uh i don't know it, it what do you say about it at this point like is it always interesting or is it i think it's still interesting in new ways mm-hmm. you know so the things that used to oh, yeah. always catch my attention right. when i would come to town yeah. Um, some of those don't get my attention in the exact same way, you know, and, and similarly, when I go back to Los Angeles for one reason or another, I see things that I didn't see living there for, you know, a decade or something. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, I, I see other things, you know, and, and I understand other things, right? So there's, you know, just the process of kind of starting to learn Japanese and getting more familiar with the day-to-day cultures and things, um, you know, something that I may have walked past a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Now I understand and has mm-hmm. a meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I can, uh, hmm. you know, connect that to something else. Right. And I can get a joke that I, you know, or, or a reference or something mm-hmm. that I, that I didn't before. Right. So, um, for me, and I think, you know, for, for my family as well, it's, it's still an ongoing adventure, um, that is different, you know, as it continues to progress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fun. I mean, you having a son, you're seeing things as both an adult and I think also through the eyes of a child. Right. <laughs> yeah, and he's, you know, he just turned eight earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So, he, you know, he's sort of approaching his ninth and ninth year and um, uh, he's in third grade now. And uh, yeah, so for him, this is a totally um, crazy adventure <laughs> in, in every way. Um, but he's also... I don't know. I mean, I I think he's aware that his life is not like, you know, many other kids' lives. Um, You know, growing up around laser cutters and 3D printers and, you know, know, crazy internet people and hackers and builders and all that sort of stuff, right? I mean, his his idea of what's possible is slightly different, um, you know, than than other people. And we've also been dragging him around the world since he was born, you know? Um, 
we did a residency in Vienna with him, you know, like right after he was born. And, you know, he's been, he's been all over. Um, so everything's kind of within reach, you know, there's nothing that's weird, you know, there's just kind of like, this is what I'm around now. Um, and, uh, you know, so he sees it in a fun way that's different than the way I see it, you know, but it's cool that we, you know, sort of share that. Yeah. You're describing a very interesting sort of flexibility of character and, and human. I hope so. You know, he's been in uh, French dual immersion school since he was born, uh, essentially. So he speaks French fluently, English fluently, right. and now starting, you know, to get some Japanese under his belt as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we always joke that we can kind of screw up everything else. And, <laughs> and yeah, and he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sean. Well, let's uh, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, it's good totally. to see you. And uh, let's go do my other favorite thing in Japan, which which I'm I'm just gonna guess has not changed for you. It's just probably the type of food has changed or the, <laughs> or the, the place that you discover. But we're gonna go eat. Yes, let's get some food. <laughs> Fantastic. And hopefully, uh, we'll all do this again and, and do updates and catch up. But uh, until then, yeah, carry on, man. All right. Thanks again.